Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls for another bonus episode. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we're covering episode four of Midnight Mass, so we have finally hit the apex of the series. All of the things are happening right now. So many things. <laughs> yeah, there's only seven episodes in the limited series. Oh, so we're we're like halfway there, to quote yep. Bon Jovi. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, boy. I'm not going to make the joke. It's right there, <laughs> but I'm not going to make the joke. We're over halfway now. So we're kind of on our downward trajectory. Okay. But I don't know. Maybe you feel differently, but I always feel like a show hits its peak a little after halfway. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like in this one, it's like episode five or six, probably. And then seven is like the resolution. Yeah, because you need... Like the middle is where the stakes have been established and you sort of know everything that's at play. I mean, there might still be other reveals. And then like the episodes right after the middle are the episodes where you're you're there with the characters trying to figure out how to come out of whatever the situation is for better or worse. Yeah. And that's often the most interesting stuff. Yeah. And so there's so much going on in this episode. Episode three was kind of the revelatory episode yeah. where we're getting like the pieces put together of all of these strange occurrences on the island. And episode four is more not necessarily fallout because we haven't really gotten to like that part where we would have fallout yet. But we have these complications that are happening. Yeah. And I think that episode three was revelatory for the audience mm -hmm. whereas episode four is revelatory for many of the other characters yeah like they're kind of catching up to mm -hmm. where we are yeah like last one was named uh what was it called proverbs uh yeah proverbs yeah so it's proverbs because we were getting knowledge and i mean they were passing some knowledge around but now we're getting like the more I don't want to say important bits because to them it's important, but we're getting more of like the plot, how the plot is moving from A to Z. We always talk about what the name of the episode is called. This one is called Lamentations. Go off, Julia. Okay, so <laughs> as with all of the episodes thus far, Lamentations is a book in the Old Testament Bible and is also part of the sort of Jewish Bible or Book of Faith. It's not part of the Torah. Like the Torah is a specific set of books, mm -hmm. but it is part of Jewish holy books as well. And Lamentations specifically is poetry that is lamenting or reflecting on the destruction of Jerusalem. So really, really important to Jewish tradition. Also really important to Christianity as well. So it's interesting that they would choose the book in the Bible that is lamenting on the destruction of a town because yeah. that's not like it's not literally occurring in the town right now, but we're definitely seeing something happening to the effect of like a, a forward momentum that's happening 
that could result in the destruction of the town based on the fact that Father Pruitt slash Father Paul is revealing that he is something new. Yeah. And that could potentially, you know, put in motion some destruction that happens. If not, uh, like, literally of the town, maybe figuratively, like, um, destruction of their faith, destruction of the framework of the town, the support system that they rely on, that kind of thing. So, super interesting. So... We just watched episode three and four, and that's actually a pretty good pair of episodes to watch at the same time, because there are some things that I picked up on episode three and brought into episode four, which one of the things that we talked about at the end of episode three is Bev Keen messing around with the rat poison again. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in episode three, we see Bev Keen observe the photo of Father Paul slash Monsignor Pruitt on his wall inside of his little cabin, (laughs) I don't know, his house. And she figures out, she puts two and two together, Father Paul and Monsignor Pruitt are the same person. Yes. At least she suspects at that point. No confirmation yet, but she suspects, like, oh, that's hinky. Okay. Then we see her messing with the rat poison. Then Father Paul dies and is resurrected. Yeah. And now in... This episode, we see that Father Paul is much different than he was before. So, do you think that Bev Keen caused him to die on purpose, like forced his hand to show whatever it is that happened? Or do you think that Father Paul asked Bev to kind of force that next thing? Like, do you think that he knew that he would need to die in order to be resurrected as this new form? Possibly. Possibly. I think he either knew or he kind of suspected. Again, like in the last episode, we talked about religious fervor. Mm -hmm. And I think in his sort of manic state of religious fervor, that could certainly occur to someone like oh yeah I need to you know and I mean like I don't think that's the case in this show but certainly there are like you know mental illnesses that manifest in this way where somebody has you know that sort of religion mixed in with mental illness we're like yeah I have to die to be resurrected because Mm -hmm. I am you know I am special or I am God has sent me this message so I I think it's possible yeah I'm interested to know like I, because I can't remember how it pans out, but I can't stop thinking about the rat poison thing. I'm like, how does that factor in? Yeah, I'm so curious about that. I'm like, is this a Bev Keen plan or is this a Father Paul plan or were they in cahoots? I don't know. I mean, either way, like Bev Keen is quite the planner. Oh my gosh. Wow. (laughs) Not to jump too far ahead, but when she kind of springs into action, you're like, how do you know how to deal with all this? (laughs) Yeah. Like, did you already have this in your head? Like, were you going to do this before? Yeah. (laughs) It's a very carefully laid out plan. (laughs) Yeah. This episode, I think more so than any of episode one through three, really delves into the religious, like more so. Yeah. Both in terms of literal scripture and also faith and also like for instance towards the beginning of this episode i think we found out in episode three can't remember 
Do we find out in episode three that Aaron lost the baby, or is that this episode? That was this episode. Okay. Yeah, right at the beginning. Okay. So Aaron goes to visit the doctor, and we find that there's no longer a heartbeat. So it's kind of the opposite of... So, like, Aaron comes home, and she's pregnant. And it's not technically a virgin birth, but I definitely get that, like, she's sort of, like, a stand-in for Mary. Like, Uh she was the prodigal daughter. She came home. She's pregnant. The baby saved her life. She had mentioned that before, that the baby literally saved her life. She knew to leave the marriage and come home. Her mother had just died, so there was a role to fill, and she loses this baby, and it's, like, the opposite of a virgin birth. Like... The opposite of that miracle. Yeah, it's interesting. I think Aaron is a combination of Mary, of the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. and Mary Magdalene. Yeah. So, like, the fallen woman who is redeemed in faith in mm-hmm. some way. And again, like, that's one of those, like I said last time, depending on how you want to take the Bible and like what kind of scholarship you want to put into your reading of the Bible. You can, you can take the Mary Magdalene story a couple of different ways Mm -hmm. in terms of who she was and sort of what her function was among the apostles and what her, I mean, we know she was a sex worker, but sort of what her standing was in society. But she is, you know, traditionally framed as the quote fallen woman who is redeemed. And I think we see some of that with Aaron as well. Yeah. But it's, like, the opposite, where, like, at least the Virgin Mary, like, she has the baby, and that's the miracle. Yeah. Aaron's miracle is that her miracle eats the baby. Yeah. Which is messed up. (laughs) Yeah. If we're talking about consumption, which, I mean, this show does deal with consumption quite a bit. Riley's problem with alcohol, Joe's problem with alcohol, consumption of blood, Aaron's body consuming her pregnancy to the point where when she goes to the mainland for a second opinion, they're like, you were never pregnant. Yeah. It's interesting. You could either consider it like a reset, like her body was rewinding. Because, I mean, that's what's happening to the people on the island. Right, right. Their bodies are rewinding to a less aged form Father Paul, like, to a more extreme version. I think that that was probably by way of the fact that he had quite a bit of the blood of the creature slash angel when he was in the tomb. And the people who are going to mass are getting a tiny bit diluted by alcohol, you know, over several masses. So they're not getting that, like, insane overnight, you know, transformation. But you could either consider it, like, oh, it's getting a rewind, or Aaron's body ate her baby. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of messed up to think about. But, I mean, being a mother in general is a very intense thing. Like, growing a body inside of your own and then, you know, bringing that life to fruition. That's something that she definitely ruminates about quite a bit in this episode. That scene, Riley and Aaron are sitting on the couch and they're talking about what happened when you die. I thought it was interesting that Riley, he was being introspective when it comes to what happens when you die. And Aaron did not want to talk about what happens when she dies. She wanted to talk about what happened when her baby died. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was really interesting. And what I really loved about the writing of that scene is that Riley is coming at it from a very logical, scientific perspective. 
and yet still makes it sound beautiful and spiritual, though agnostic of a particular religion or God or faith tradition. It's really very lovely. Mm-hmm. And Aaron's is also lovely in a more traditional spiritual sense, although she is very intentional to say it's not about mansions or clouds or anything like that. It's about love. And so I thought those were both two really, really beautiful expressions of like what happens when we die. Yeah. This is something that I'll talk about if we ever do another Mike Flanagan show. He does a really good job of couching these very touching and lovely and beautifully shot moments where you get very emotional. You see a lot of like very honest and pure emotions from the actors too. And then sandwiching it or like bookending it with a really horrific scene. Yeah. Because like Aaron and Riley are waxing poetic about what happens when you die. And then we see Joe at a very vulnerable moment, go to Father Paul and say, I had a really tough day today. And Joe's only been sober like two days at this point, like maybe a day and a half. Like this is I think his second day. He goes to Father Paul and he's like, I had a really tough day. I'm struggling, but I'm proud of myself. But he also sees Father Paul at a very vulnerable moment because Father Paul, during this entire episode, his body has been changing. He's been coming to terms with the idea that he is something new. He has different requirements that he didn't have. Yeah. Yeah. He can't be in the sun. He has this terrible hunger that's just like racking through him and he can't control it. And Joe kind of comes upon him in this time of weakness. And Father Paul kind of reveals himself to be what he is now, which is, I mean, he's a vampire, but he doesn't see himself as a vampire. Right, yeah. So you have this really beautiful moment about what happens when you die. And they're like going on these beautiful, Riley's like, oh, your body releases DMT. You have this like a long dream and then you're gone and you get reabsorbed into the universe and then you're part of everything. And then Aaron says like, oh, you're, you're not alone and you're loved and God kisses you on the forehead. She literally says that. And then we see Joe twitching, bleeding, dying with a priest, not giving him his last rites. And then he's just dead. Yeah, Joe has this pretty horrific death. And um, and the thing about it is, juxtaposed to what Riley is saying, at least in those first moments, Joe is aware of what's happening to him and is unable to do anything. And it's not this pleasant release of DMT and you're just fading away into this dream world of all your memories. He is actively aware, uh, which is an interesting parallel to Lisa's experience in the last episode when she described when she was first shot and her coming to understanding of what had happened to her. Like he is aware of like, I can't move. I can't do anything about this but I am dying and there's another person here who is not helping me. Yeah. Also, why is everybody leaving their doors open? Right? (laughs) I mean, I know it's like a small island, but still, yeah, close your doors, (laughs) y'all. Like, there's some sensitive things happening. Yeah. Especially you, Father Paul, you should be shutting more doors. I mean, like, yeah, you've got a giant, like, angel vampire creature walking around in a trench coat. Shut your 
shut your door, man. <laughs> Not only that, like, he's dressed like three kids in a trench coat. But, I know. But, but he's also really tall, so he's, like, literally three kids in yeah. a trench coat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, you need to maybe, like, find a better <laughs> camouflage. A better yeah. Yeah. Also, like, some gloves would be really good. I mean, I know they're going to be hard to find in that particular size, but... He's got Nosferatu hands. Yeah. They're like 12 inches long. Yeah. Each, it, like each finger is like 12 <laughs> inches long. It's got a like crazy nail on the end yeah. of it too. Oh, speaking of Joe's death, a question for you or Ooh. a theory I had. Okay. Did you connect anything that Joe said with something that the doctor's mother said earlier? Mm-mm. No. Okay. Fill me in. Okay. Wild theory. I could be entirely wrong about this. This might be me reading way too much into everything. When the doctor's mother has sort of regained her mental faculties Mm -hmm. and she is now kind of moving about the house and she comes upon the doctor who is working and she quizzes her mother, which you can tell she's been doing over and over again Mm -hmm. to try to figure out like if this is real, if this is a moment of lucidity or whatever. And she says, you know, what's your name? What, what were chores that you did when you were younger? Mm -hmm. And she says, who was my father? And I swear again, this could be just me. The mother hesitated there Mm -hmm. later. When Joe notices the newspaper article that, yes, confirms that Father Paul is Father Pruitt, Mm -hmm. he doesn't say, like, oh, you're him. He's like, oh, you could be his son. Yeah. And then he says in passing, he's like, which could be possible because I heard he wasn't exactly celibate. I was like, oh, shit. Is he the doctor's father? (laughs) That's I like that's a that's a good that's a good catch. I, I didn't mean, even think about that. Maybe, maybe that's me just like <laughs> keying in on things that don't need to be keyed in on. But well, there are definitely some special scenes between him and the. I mean, when he comes to give her communion, like there's a special moment there, there between the, the two of them, and it could be anything. It could be, but also like. There are few people old enough on the island to remember what he would look like. Mm-hmm. So she is like, oh, my God, it's you. How is this possible? And he's like, don't you even worry about it. Just take this blood. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's a special moment there. Also, if you recall from last episode, there's a moment when the doctor is checking him out. And he says something like, me and your mother are very proud of you which is like why would you say it like that? exactly exactly and and just the fact too that he he goes to the trouble and yes like we're talking about a man of faith a man who is renewed in his sense of service to his community but the tenderness and care with which we see him bringing her communion every day and obviously he's been feeding her the blood and i think more than everybody else if i'm being perfectly honest. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Interesting. That's a good catch. That's my theory. That's a good catch. So there's a moment, we talked about this in the first episode, how you really liked um, Ed, Riley's dad, how he, like, at first was, like, real hard on Riley when he came home and was upset with him that he didn't want to go to church and that he didn't want to take communion. 
And then he's trying later. He comes in and he's like, all right, well, you got to go to church, but don't take communion because that's not right. In this episode, we get a scene of them on the boat. Riley is now on the boat with his dad. And Ed is like, hey, Father Paul told me that I should probably talk to you about a couple of things. So I'm going to do this. And you can tell that it's hard for him because mm-hmm. Ed definitely seems like the type of person to suppress yeah. versus to like explore. And the type of person, too, who has grown up in a society that says men don't need to share feelings, um, even if it is a father and a son, that you don't need to get into feelings or, you know, process in that way. Or that however you perceive a thing is exactly how it happened. Because that happens in that very conversation where Riley's like, I didn't mean it like that. And he's like, just let me just let me finish. Yeah. Toxic masculinity rearing its ugly head again. Always. (laughs) Um, But is that the true horror? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so he tells Riley that he forgives him for all of the things, like the fact that they had to pay so much for his legal fees, the fact that they're now having to shelter him and feed him and basically keep him safe and make sure he doesn't violate his probation or parole. And he's like, I forgive you. I, I held that against you. I had resentment in my heart from before that. I thought you were, like, too much of a hotshot to, like, care about your blue-collar family. But I forgive you. And I I wondered what you thought about that. Ed's forgiveness of Riley versus Lisa's forgiveness of Joe and the fact that we see both of them, Joe being fed on by Father Paul and then later Riley being fed on by the creature. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Maybe forgiveness tastes real good. Maybe. I'm just <laughs> I don't know. It's delicious. Delicious, delicious forgiveness. Yeah, that that is an interesting parallel. I mean, certainly it's an interesting comparison because Lisa comes from you know, there's so much anger and passion in what she's saying and her Her forgiveness is couched in like, I am forgiving you because I know that that is the right thing for both of us, but I'm also still angry. And Ed's thing is more like, I was mad, but I've always loved you nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I am coming to a place of forgiveness. So it's kind of like just two different dimensions of the way that forgiveness can manifest. Yeah. As for the feeding thing, that's really interesting because, I mean, if you take the sort of model of confession, you know, there's like you confess your sins and then you receive absolution, Mm -hmm. which is said to come from God and like purifies you. So maybe it is kind of a by receiving forgiveness, their souls and thus their blood are somehow purified or something. Doesn't Father Paul say something about receiving absolution when he is yeah. drunk on, or when he is drunk from in the cave too? Yes. Okay. Yes. So yeah, he's like, I received absolution. Uh, my fear was drained from me mm-hmm. and I received absolution and youth later. I mean, fascinating to, mm-hmm. to see those parallels in three very different situations. Yeah. Because, like, obviously, Father Paul receives a great gift from this creature. 
the gift of starting anew. And then later when he dies and is resurrected, now immortality. Mm -hmm. I mean, unfortunately, with the caveat of not being able to go outside when it's sunny and having this terrible, terrible thirst for blood. But yeah. And then Joe, you know, obviously he's just dead. Well, and one could say that prior to the, you know, his horrible death, uh, Joe received a new lease on life because of Lisa's forgiveness. You know, he began to explore his sobriety. And Riley, I think you could kind of say was, and this is perhaps a stretch, it wasn't until he was forgiven that he was able to key into some knowledge that granted is putting him in danger when we leave him at the end of this episode, but some knowledge that I think is going to be very important to everyone's survival or not mm-hmm. when all is said and done. The fact that Father Paul lied. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he also kind of received a new lease on life. I mean, aside from the obvious, like, returning home from prison and, and being able to restart with his family, his dad, um, his mom, who's already obviously forgiven him, and loves him very much, but also starting something new with Aaron. Yeah. And unfortunately, like, it didn't take the death of her baby for that to happen. But he was certainly in a position to step up and kind of hold her in her grief, Mm -hmm. allow her to grieve, and honestly encourage her to make healthy choices about it. Like, go seek a second opinion. Yeah. If you don't want to leave your house for a month, that's totally okay. So definitely revisiting and growing into a new relationship that maybe neither of them ever thought was going to happen again. So yeah, and I love in that scene too, that he completely affirms what she needs to process her grief, even if it's not the same way he does, you know, he prays with her. Mm -hmm. And she even says like, wow, you did that. And that's, you know, you don't even really go to church. And then he offers in the morning to walk her to church, Mm -hmm. even though like, you know, he doesn't really want to be in church. Mm -hmm. You know, he offers because he knows that's important to her. Yeah. And maybe that's a function of him spending so much time with so little to do. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that Riley keeps emphasizing is that he does not feel he has a purpose. Right. Like, he doesn't feel like he has a purpose anymore after he got out of prison. And that's one of the things that he emphasizes when he talks about dying, is having a purpose again. Mm -hmm. And I think he's starting to find that purpose again. And it's okay. He had these, like, grand aspirations of, like, leaving the island and being a big shot. And he was. But then he got kind of knocked back down after he killed that girl um, drunk driving. And now he's back. And now he's seeing, okay, maybe it's okay to find purpose on this island. Maybe it's okay for me, my purpose to be to support a woman I love and to not be alone to kind of like co-opt what Aaron was saying. But two things that kind of go together. One of the things that they keep reinforcing is how aging and physical, like, I don't want to say disabilities, because really, Lisa was the only one that was, like, disabled, at least in terms of our main cast of characters. There's obviously other sick people on the island. But how the aging process or, like, decline in mental faculties or decline in physical faculties have impaired people's capability of forgiveness Mm -hmm. in this show. 
Yeah, and that's that's really interesting and that's really complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a slippery slope, if I'm being quite honest. I can see how, on the one hand, if you are so perhaps distracted by what's happening with your body, it could limit your capacity to sort of transcend what you're embodying and forgive and to, you know, put things out to other people. Mm -hmm. But I also think, and we'll have to see kind of where it goes with the rest of the show, like, that is also tricky to say, oh, like, aging, physical or mental differences in, in abilities or capabilities somehow limits somebody's spiritual capacity like stuff like that makes me very nervous yeah you know when when we start to go down that road because i'm sure. like uh it, but does it because yeah. i don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah it just seems like in this show like let's say for instance riley's dad which this is actually how i wanted to wrap that together mm-hmm. it does not appear to be capable of forgiving riley until he has received the gift of being able to kind of rewind time a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, it's affecting people's judgment. Everybody in the town is beginning to notice and appreciate the effects of the sacrament, Mm -hmm. which is what they're calling the blood, the vampire blood, to be specific. So people are not having to wear glasses anymore. You can see the gray is being removed from their hair etc. So it's just interesting that we have these people who are kind of, they're walking back and they're, I don't know if it's a function of getting, having this miracle happen to them or having this miracle happen in the town that's causing them to do these things. Or is it just by way of not being so set in their ways that they're being this way? Yeah. Or just like having a burden, you know, burden they didn't realize they were carrying lifted the you know the burden of aging Mm -hmm. perhaps again it's like slippery (laughs) yeah so upon second watch through i'm keying into some of the these like bigger ideas of um like stigmata and things like that and one of the things that really stood out to me in this particular episode was the scene of father paul after bev leaves He's like taken ill into his into his bedroom. Um, this is after he's died and been resurrected. Bev brings him soup. He doesn't want to eat it because duh, he can't have soup anymore. Um, he can't have any sort of solid foods clearly. But there's a, a scene when he's praying at the foot of his bed and he has a crucifix in his hand, and the crucifix digs into his palm and then he bleeds and he licks the blood and it's like fortifying to him like Mm -hmm. it's um a holy experience and it's another one of those situations like what happened in the last episode where it's like clearly if you are in a religious fervor of course you would think that drinking the blood drinking the sacrament of your own body would be the thing to do and, like, the most important, most holy thing that you could do to honor yourself and also reinforce the idea that you're a saint. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, 
you know, throughout Catholic lore, you know, that is like one of the hallmarks of saints, you know, um, it, first of all, to, to become an actual canonized saint, you have to have, I think it's three miracles attributed to you. So like, all right, he's racking them up, but also so many of the sort of like most storied saints experienced like stigmata or, Either they experienced it on their bodies or, like, would have, like, a statue of, like, Jesus or mm -hmm. Mary. Like, the statue would start bleeding from where the wounds would be. Or in the case of Mary, like, the Mary statue would cry tears of blood or things like that. So, yeah, I can totally see how, because it's all over the literature, as we say. Yeah. Um, I could totally see how he was like, yeah, yeah, good, good. This is, this is all part of the plan. And, like... At this point, Bev, the mayor, the mayor's wife, and Sturge know they're the only four that know outside of Father Paul. A at that point in the episode, they're the only ones that know that Father Paul has something weird going on. Something hinky is happening because they all saw him die and get resurrected. They just think that he's a saint. And Bev is like, okay, well, I'll be good apostles to him. He's a saint. But they have to kind of keep it on the down low. Because mm -hmm. it's not appropriate for a, a whole bunch of people to know that. Because if it gets out that he's a saint, then he'll never, you know, he'll never hear the end of it. Somebody from the mainland will come, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So, what did you think about it when Father Paul had killed Joe and Bev? Obviously, this, you know, he's not in mass for like 30 minutes. Or the guy at the organ is just like, no, 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 okay. Like, please don't make me play the song anymore. <laughs> vamp, vamp. Uh, yeah, like, uh, can we do something else? Maybe let me take a break. My hands hurt. But she goes to Father Paul's house to get him, and she sees that Joe Colley is lying very dead in a pool of blood. Father Paul is covered in blood all over his mouth and face and hands. And there's drag marks across the yeah. floor, like where he dragged himself away. And she says, you don't have to tell, you don't have to answer to me. I was like, what does she mean by that? Does she mean that only he has to answer to God or that he doesn't have to answer to anybody because he's a saint? Probably a little of both, honestly. It's like he is a saint therefore he is accountable to only god and obviously because he's a saint god has a plan here so we're good we're good kind of circular logic but i bev keen seems really good at that so yeah probably the best at circular yeah logic. yeah in the same scene so she you know she tells him we gotta get you cleaned up we'll get everything figured out and then like in five minutes she gets the mayor and Sturge to come over, and she's already formulated a plan for getting rid of Joe Colley's body. Pretty pretty good one, actually. Yeah. Put it into action, and then she also spends the next three minutes convincing the mayor to do it, because he's like, uh, uh, I'm the mayor. I'm not going to drag Joe Colley out of here. That's Joe Colley. He's dead. And you're just going to say, like, yeah, let's drag him out of here. And she slaps him in the face. And then lays some, like, biblical guilt on him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fascinating. So the book that she, rev or the passage that she quotes to him is from Deuteronomy, which is, like, one of the real strict books of the Bible. Like, Surprise. One of, it's one of the, like, books of law that is considered, like, 
it's often one of the books where when you hear conservative Christians um, trying to use Bible passages to justify legislation or or like really harmful policy, Mm -hmm. it's often from Deuteronomy completely without context. And that's a little bit of what Bev did here, too, was sort of like, I'm going to extract the chapters and verses of the most seemingly harsh thing and give it to you without the context of the rest of the story or why this book was written to serve my purpose in this moment. Which is hilarious because she is telling the mayor that he can't pick and choose yeah. what he exactly. uses from the Bible. But that's exactly what she did. Yeah. Like I said for our last episode, Bev Keen, you probably hate her, but holy cow. That what? scene was amazing, though. <laughs> yeah. She took charge and she riles herself up into a, a religious mm-hmm. fervor, much like Father Paul had done in the previous episode. She works herself up to the point where she's actually screaming at these guys. And when she's done, they wrap up Joe Colley's body and enact the plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're happy to do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're like, she's like, he's a scourge on the planet. You like, this is. This is for the good of everybody. And your father, who has performed these holy acts for you and performed these miracles, which your own daughter profited from or has, you know, received this gift from from his miracles, you you want her to go back into the chair? It's like, ooh. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, she digs deep on that. And I think it's also interesting that her control complex really comes out there because not only is she bossing those two around she also gets pretty bossy with father paul in that moment too and he's so out of it he just kind of takes it but it's like he's the one you're saying is like a saint and is accountable to only god and you're like over there sassing him too like okay (laughs) yeah she asks him if he has guilt or if he feels if he has a heavy conscience or if he feels guilt in his heart and he says no and it's like yeah, dude, you're, first of all, you're still blood drunk, clearly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and also, no, you didn't feel guilty because you had been consumed by hunger the entire day. Mm-hmm. Of course not. Of course yeah. you're not going to feel guilty. And also, from a thousand feet up, if you look at Joe Colley's life, and until very recently, you know, his redemption and his interaction with sobriety and these AA meetings that were... I mean, seemingly pulling him out of a very dark, crappy place in his life. If you're just looking at the whole of his life, it's probably pretty crappy. I think that's so interesting, though, because if you compare Bev's view of Joe Colley to the sheriff's view, Mm -hmm. which is always very gentle like acknowledging that this person is far from perfect, but also showing them great care. And for Bev to, on the other hand, proclaim to be this like, you know, super Christian and all of that. And to, and to hear her just say how seemingly disposable Joe's life is, it's really illustrative, I think. Especially because though Joe's life may have severely impacted several other people's lives and Lisa's parents and her own life and all that up until recently. Yeah, that might've been the case, but I think he reinforced Riley's sobriety and absolutely. 
um, helped Riley to find purpose because mm-hmm. prior to Joe being a part of his AA meeting, I mean, he probably had to go to AA in prison, maybe. Maybe? Uh, probably, yeah. But outside of prison, the only people he had ever been in AA with was Father Paul, and unlikely that he would be struggling with alcoholism. <laughs> yeah, it didn't... It It doesn't seem that way based on everything we know about the character. Right. So he doesn't feel... He feels alone. And then he sees Joe as sort of this fallen figure, and then, you know, Joe... He's able to help Joe. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if it's just for two days of sobriety, that's a victory. And when you're first starting to get sober, those tiny milestones are really important. Yeah. And it's interesting because it puts Riley in a role that it doesn't seem like he ever saw for himself, perhaps ever, but certainly since he's been home from prison, it puts him in the role of having something to teach someone else and to be able to be a mentor rather than always having to rely on the guidance or supervision of others. He's able to be in a role of a leader and a guide to someone else. Yeah. Speaking of that, I kind of wanted to talk about the other miracles that are happening. I guess you can't really call them miracles necessarily, but miracles that are happening outside of what the sacrament is doing, Mm -hmm. like Riley being able to teach Joe something, something Mm -hmm. that he never, ever thought was going to happen, that he never, he never saw himself as a teacher or with anything important to say, but he's doing it. And he's making a real difference in Joe's life and the fact that Joe is trying to get sober and has a reason to be sober and foresees himself with a place in the community. Also, you can kind of say that this is caused by the sacrament, but you could also say it's not. Riley's dad apologizing to him. Mm -hmm. Ed apologizing to Riley and saying, like, I forgive you. I love you. That kind of thing. All of those things It's very interesting that we're seeing these miracles, quote unquote, for people who did not ask for these to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I guess you could say, like, Lisa probably prayed to be able to walk again. Maybe the doctor's mom had prayed to not lose her memory so much. But those things were given to them with no expectation that that was actually going to happen. Right, 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 right. And it's more of a physical change. It's not a miracle, like, miracles of the nature of Joe and Riley and Ed are not something that you can give with a sacrament. Right, yeah, yeah. They kind of become, in the context of this story at least, they're kind of a ripple effect Mm -hmm. of everything else. Because they're all related back to those kind of initial miracles in some way, um, sort of opening up the capacity of everyone in the town to be more open-hearted let's say mm-hmm. um except for bev keen except for bev keen <laughs> bev keen has that has that shit locked down <laughs> <laughs> she's got a stick of her butt she yeah. can't she can't do it cannot do it one of the things i thought was interesting so aaron's loss her she loses the baby that is probably the one thing that has happened during the course of this television show That is verifiable by science because they have, you know, records of the ultrasound. They have Mm -hmm. the sonogram. There's probably pictures. Um, You also have Sarah's notes. I mean, if you take those as gospel, ha ha ha, that was a bad pun. Um, (laughs) 
But if you take the doctor's notes to like her charts, the fact that there probably was a positive pregnancy test that the doctor administered, etc. Those things are all verifiable by science. Unfortunately, when Erin goes to the mainland, she doesn't have those pieces of evidence with her. And they immediately call her mental state into question. They're like, do you want to talk to? And I mean, I guess from an outside perspective, it might be, I mean, they've run the test. They did the the science. They ran down the list of stuff. Your pregnancy test is negative. You don't have any HCG in your blood. You don't have any physical remainder of a pregnancy. You didn't have any um, symptoms of a miscarriage. So to a doctor from an outside perspective, she's not pregnant. And of course, they immediately assume hysterical woman kind of yeah so it's also really interesting that the only person who seeks verification for the miracle that they're experiencing is the person whose miracle was a loss rather than you know an obvious gain yeah and there was a clear choice that was made by Lisa's parents Mm -hmm. to not go and seek verification. So would you call Aaron's loss of her child a miracle? I mean, that's a really good question. Yeah. I will be curious to see if it is part of the whole like air quotes miracle thing, or if we start to see more, you know, kind of counter counterbalances, like where there is a gain, there is a loss. Um, that kind of a thing. Did you foresee Riley being attacked by the winged no, creature? No, that was a surprise. Especially because, and it's nice to see Riley in a physically vulnerable position. He's been emotionally vulnerable this entire time. But um, it's, yeah, it's cool because Riley is certainly kind of our main definitely confirmed in this episode, like our main protagonist and our main, like, the person who's starting to figure things out, you mm-hmm. know, this the the person who is unraveling the the mystery, and it is nice to see that he is not immune to the danger of this all. That in the unraveling, that it's not just it's not just stuff happening to other people, and he's there to find the clues and unravel the story. That he's in doing that is actively putting himself in danger. I also thought it was really interesting that. The way that Father Paul made his story vulnerable to Riley mm-hmm. and the reason for Riley to question what had happened is because Riley had extended that kindness to Joe. Exactly. And he's like, where's Joe? And Father Paul's like, oh, he's visiting his sister. And Riley would only have known that his sister had died if he had become close to him right. in very, very short period of time because Joe mentions that she had only died a couple of weeks before So Riley would only know that if he had reached out in kindness to him in the past, like, because that's not information that Joe probably would have volunteered to every person. No, it doesn't seem like that at all. So it's interesting to me that that one natural, like, Mm -hmm. because Riley didn't ask, he didn't know that Joe had a sister. He didn't ask about his family. But that one tiny piece of information just freely given is the thing that makes Riley like, why did Father Paul lie? And then it inevitably puts him in that vulnerable situation. Also, the door thing. I know I said, like, 
shut all your doors. But, (laughs) But I did think it was, it's very telling that when Father Paul kills Joe... But his front door is open. Mm-hmm. And when Riley gets attacked by the winged creature, that door is open too. Mm-hmm. And Father Paul is the one closing the doors in both situations. Mm. So I wonder if that has some sort of like meaning. That's Aside interesting. from just the filmmaking perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and we see the door to the community center a lot. We see the door to the church a lot. Riley stops in front of Aaron's door and then makes the choice to move on and confront Father Paul about where Joe is. Mm -hmm. I think doors are significant here. Closed and open. Closed and open, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's certainly that part of vampire lore you know, that that is not mm. applicable to all vampire stories, but, you know, one of the tenets of vampires is that they have to be invited in. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting because Father Paul, by virtue of who he is, has been kind of invited in everywhere. Dang, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, and that's probably also why the winged creature just peeps in people's windows. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he can't go in. Except for the community center, because I don't think that those rules apply to shared buildings. No, I wouldn't think so. And I and I would think too that even if they did, Father Paul would have already invited him into all of the mm. sort of mm-hmm. church spaces because he's an angel, man. Yeah, he's an angel. He yeah, where he of wants. course he's like whatever. Um, I, I also don't think that crucifixes are like. No, it doesn't seem like that's a thing because there's crucifixes everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those one of those things that's like real optional in the in the vampire stories. Yeah. I saw a joke the other day. It was like, imagine being a 6,000-year-old vampire, and then one day you wake up and two sticks that look like a lowercase t make you hurt. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, in this case, it doesn't seem like crucifixes are a a bane. No, definitely not. Just sunlight. But the threshold thing, that's interesting. I I will have to keep closer watch on future Mm. episodes whatever there is in the future episodes are so it's so it's such a short mini series it's like uh there's i want more i know but there's no way that there could be a second season it's like a perfect a, wrapped up story a little package yes thanks for listening to attack of the final girls find us online at attack of the final girls.com attack of the final girls on instagram and on twitter at final girls pod our theme music is by house ghost and available on rad girlfriend records don't forget to rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts or wherever you listen and tell your friends about us i'm julia and i'm Teresa. until next time stay scary